that was probably one of the more emotional interviews. Uh, she, she cried and um, pretty much through the whole thing and said that she had been longing to tell her story, that it had haunted her for um, all of her life since she was five years old. Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Halabrezos. Today, author and journalist Lois Lake. We don't have orphanages anymore. That name disappeared in the late 20th century as governments pivoted to deinstitutionalization. The need to protect children whose parents are either dead or alive but unable to care for them, of course, continues to this day under various provincially funded programs. But while orphanages have faded into a vague memory for most, journalist Lois Legg set out to talk to those who can't forget them. Men and women who, as children, spent time in these Victorian institutions' last decades of existence. These were also people whose voices, as children, have never been heard until now. Her book is entitled Wounded Hearts, Memories of the Halifax Protestant Orphans Home. Lois Legg, welcome to Book Me. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Technically speaking, most of these children weren't orphans. That's right. Um, sometimes one parent had died. Um, other times both parents were alive, but for reasons such as mental illness, um, poverty, um, alcoholism was a big one. Um, they weren't able to take care of them. Um, so they ended up in the Halifax Protestant Orphans Home. Could you read some of your introduction for us, please? Sure. I'll read you the preface because I think it, it gives you a sense of a, an overview of what the book is about. And the preface starts with a quote, um, which is part of the inspiration for the book. It's a quote from probably the most famous book about orphans, Oliver Twist. And it is, it is because I think so much of warm and sensitive hearts that I would spare them from being wounded, end quote. I first heard about the Halifax Protestant Orphans Home from a reporter who was covering old bones. Construction workers had found the remains while digging up a section of North Park Street, and archaeologists thought they might have been from a child. It had been the first site of what was later known as the Halifax Protestant Orphanage, founded in 1857 and closed in 1970. Forensic experts eventually determined they were animal bones, not the skeletons of children who had once lived in this forgotten place from another time. Interest died down, and I tucked the story away for another day. But hidden things often rise up or never go away, as I've learned again and again from the former residents of this Halifax institution, who were often beaten by staff members, who scared them and taught them, as one person put it, quote, about the uncertainty of life. Today, these former residents are senior citizens whose sons and daughters are grown and whose grandchildren are growing or about to be born. But as I listened to them speak, I thought of them as children. I thought of their baby pictures and school photographs and old black and white snapshots taken inside the orphanage, a place for children who were neglected or abused at home or whose parents had died or whose parents were too sick or too poor to raise them. I remembered ringlets rimming tiny faces and gap two smiles. I remembered little bow ties worn for First Communion and tiny hands holding stuffed toys. 
I wondered how anyone could ever strap them or keep them in closets or tie them to beds, as many say some of the matrons, the women who ran the orphanage, often did. I wondered how their parents or their foster parents could have beaten them or starved them or humiliated them, as some say their blood relatives and appointed guardians did. I wondered how those who had been loved but had lost their parents to poverty or sickness or death had managed in this strange place of loneliness and fear. And I wondered, after all of that, how they went on to build careers and loving families and how they formed compassionate hearts out of the wreckage of their own. It's a daunting task to take someone's life story into your own hands and try to tell it with truth and dignity and compassion and to do it without adding to the hurt but thinking about their lives as children made me determined to try and made me hope in some small way to help heal these wounded hearts of long ago. Well, Lois, what about that challenge to someone like you who was interviewing men and women who had been hurt, both physically and psychologically? I mean, it's not your average interview. No, I think... Um, I learned this, I think, maybe through many years of newspaper reporting, is that you have to um, do your best to get the information while also realizing you're talking to very vulnerable people and you don't ever want to add to their pain. Um, so I would just let the, them tell their stories, let it unfold. If it got too difficult, I would always say, do you want to stop now? Um, nine times out of ten, they would say, no, I have to get it out. I want to keep going. And a lot of times they were releasing things they had never told anyone before, and they have told me since uh, it has helped them. It's hard to imagine what it was like to be very young, coming from a home where the situation was not ideal, and then being taken to this institution called the orphanage. Tell us what Linda Gray LeBlanc told you about her experience, that transition. Yes. Well, there was a long tradition going back to the 1800s of when children were first admitted to the orphanage. They would be put in what was called an isolation room. So they were put in there for two weeks. Linda calls it the horror room. So they're taken from their home. They're brought to this strange place. They're put in a room. The door is locked. They don't have a bathroom in there, and they're kept in there for two weeks. The idea was to prevent the spread of uh, lice or other diseases. But for children who were taken from their home, sometimes a very difficult home, this was um, a stark trauma from the very beginning. So uh, Linda is haunted by that still. When we have visited the orphanage, which is now still standing, it's called Beath House, a community center that does wonderful work, she still finds it very hard to go in there. She rushes past it. Um, it's very emotional for her. And what about her other experiences in the orphanage? And they turned out to be quite different from other people when you take the long view. Yes, she and um, another resident um, who I interviewed who were there either in the 40s, in Linda's case, in the 50s, there was a practice then of tying children to their beds at night. Um, Linda calls it a bed jacket, a straight jacket. Um, children's hands were free, but they basically they were strapped around the waist and the ties were tied to the mattress underneath, so they were unable to move. Um, so they would lie there all night. Uh, many times they would wet the bed, and if they wet the bed, they would be punished. Um, Linda and her sister sometimes in the morning uh, would try to gather up the bed sheets and hide them. Um, um, before the matrons came in in the morning um, so that they wouldn't be punished at least for that. 
but she ended up working at the orphanage. It's a very uh, strange twist of fate in Linda's case. Um, if you read Linda's chapter, she had a difficult time before, during, and after the orphanage, which is the case for many of the uh, children, unfortunately. Um, so she was in several foster homes. Um, they were abusive homes. Um, so when the opportunity came, when she turned 18 to go work in the orphanage, she jumped at the chance. And so she went back there and um, tried to change, not only through her own account, but through other residents who were there in the 60s when she was there, who tell me, tried to change some of the practices, uh, tried to be kinder um, to the children, give them more freedom, give them more joy. And so several of them remember, have very fond memories of Linda as a matron there. Yeah. As you interviewed more of the former residents of the orphanage, did they corroborate specific disciplinary acts that others had mentioned, such as the, the strapping, tying kids to beds and so on? Yes, yes. There was a thread, and many of them, most of them didn't know each other. Their stories were remarkably consistent especially in the 40s and 50s, um, this this most barbaric practice seems to have been, and perhaps long before, it's hard to know because I can't tell those stories, what it was like. Um, but yes, um, also uh, there were other rituals, um, there were other punishments that were quite traumatic for children. Dinner time was a big one, um, where they were forced to eat everything on their plate, um, sometimes to the point of throwing up. If they didn't, they were forced to sit at the table all night long. There was a thread of that through the generations. As I got to the 60s, um, no one had specific memories about the bed tying anymore, but there were strappings, there were uh, beatings with the wooden paddle, um, you know, standing in corners, that, that type of thing with their arms raised. Uh, one resident from the 1940s was routinely kept in closets and still traumatized by that uh, to this day. The, these institutions were a hybrid of religious charities and public funding from the province. How much did that complicate the matter of ensuring that children weren't ill-treated? Yes, very much so. It was founded, actually, um, by one of the Uniacs of the famous Uniac family, Robert Fitzgerald Uniac, who's the first um, minister of the St. George's Round Church. And by all accounts, he was a, you know, a compassionate man, but, uh, you know, uh, sticking to the mores of the time, I guess. So he founded it with other philanthropists. And very early on, it was a private, well, it was always a private institution, but they funded it, the wealthy um, uh, the prominent of Halifax funded it. The turn of the century, the province started contributing more, as did children's aid societies, which were privately run but publicly funded. And I found financial records that showed that provincial funding only grew over time, yet um, the ladies' committee, um, which ran it, and the board of governors, they had autonomy. And the matrons, who some people, most people told me had no training, the matrons who were there day to day, they ruled that place. And almost to a person, everyone I spoke to said, no one from the province, children's aid, from the ladies' committee ever asked me how I was treated. But there were questionnaires that the province sent out every year. That's right. At the turn of the century, Ernest Blois um, was a long time uh, community service, social service, the department changed, but uh, minister, and he started these surveys for uh, many of these privately run institutions that received funding. Um, asking about certain things, um, you know, uh, asking about everything from like the number of tablecloths to how clean it was. And there were three questions about discipline, but it was done on the honor system. So people checked off 
no, no, occasionally, whatever. Um, corporal but, punishment, things like that? Yes, corporal punishment. Uh, you know, was, do you use solitary confinement was the other one. I'm drawing a blank on what the third one was right now. But these um, uh, head matrons could check that off, but there would appear to be no follow-up um, whatsoever on that. And I was able to find, actually, in uh, some of the matrons from the 30s and 40s who residents told me were the worst abusers, checked off no to all of them. So they weren't held to account for sure. No accountability. No accountability. At all no. On either the part of the, the orphanage or the province, I no. guess. No. Some people like Paul Sabarats kept getting moved. Mm -hmm. I mean, he went to two orphanages, 21 different foster homes, mm -hmm. and one reform school. Incredible. What, what did he share with you? He, um, he had a rough upbringing beforehand, of course. He was raised by his grandmother, who was quite um, abusive and had a, addictions. He says that he received um, um, severe corporal punishment in the Catholic or St. Joseph's Catholic Orphanage and in the Protestant Orphanage and in foster home after foster home after foster home. Um, he was always looking for a family. He, he Both parents were alive. His mother gave him up. Um, he didn't know his father, um, had never met him as a child. Um, so he was always looking for a home. And he said he was always hoping, you know, at each place he went, will this be it? You know, will this be my new family? Will they treat me well? And they never did. And um, people have asked me, you know, <laughs> how can you not cry when you're talking to people? And one of the closest points I came to was when I was in Paul's home, and he told me he never had a mother and father, and he'd always longed for one. He showed me a tattoo on his arm he got when he was 13, and it was a heart, and you could see the faded words, Mom and Dad. And I remember um, sitting with him at his table. It was like a very cold January day, and uh, I I thought I might weep, <laughs> but I used, you know, you use your training not to do that, but I was very moved by that. You spoke with a parent, Elaine McClellan, who gives yes. a different perspective mm. on what it was like to have to give up her children at one yes. point, but who, who then really fought to regain their custody. She did. Yes, that was an interesting perspective to have. It was a bit different than some of the others. Um, she had been married to a man who had a severe drinking problem, and she had stayed with him for 10 years. They had moved quite a bit, and she finally left him, and she had... Um, Five, five children, I believe it was, at that time. And she had nowhere to go. She had no money. She had no family to help her. So she put the children in there out of desperation while she looked for a place to live. Um, she felt horrible that she had to do that, but she thought, like, well, I don't want... Children's Aid had suggested they put them in different homes. And she said, well, it's going to be bad enough that they lose their mother. I'm not going to have them separated. So um, they were in there uh, for almost a, a year. And while well, she tried to find a place for them, and she had still um, said that she felt guilty about that, but her children don't blame her. And um, they feel she did the best she could for them um, at the time. And they keep trying to re reassure her about they that do. too. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They're very uh, loyal to their mom and they know she did what she had to do. The oldest former resident in your book is a woman you call Margaret, mm -hmm. not her real name, 
who was now in her 90s mm -hmm. and was in the Protestant Orphans Home, I guess, in the mid-1930s, early yes. 40s, thereabouts. Yes. Mm -hmm. What was it like for her to finally have someone to tell about her experiences there? She was very emotional. I was um, I able to track her down, actually. I had um, just a lot of these, some of these cases, I shouldn't say a lot, I kind of cold called when I had a name. And so I went through a directory in Ontario, wasn't a very common name, so it narrowed it down and I reached her. And um, that was probably one of the more emotional interviews. Uh, she, she cried and um, pretty much through the whole thing and said that she had been longing to tell her story, that it had haunted her for um, all of her life since she was five years old um, and that she had to get it out. So we did talk at that point and I wanted to talk to her again. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to actually fly up to see her or, you know, it would have been ideal to meet face to face, but it wasn't possible at that moment. Um, so she said she wanted to get it out. She told me about her experiences there, about being strapped, about her little brother um, who had some form of disability, um, being strapped, about a matron there who she said was just unbelievably cruel. Um, she was humiliated there uh, many times. And then when I tried to follow up, um, I didn't hear anything back. I tried and tried and tried again, and I wondered, you know, was it just too much for her? To, to relive that. I debated whether to put her in the book. I was able to find her maiden name in records from the 1930s. I was able to find documentation. She was there. But I thought, well, she said she wanted her story told, so I told it, but I, I kept her name private in case she had had a change of heart. Now, we've touched on accountability, and aside from the interviews, you made a Freedom of Information application to the province of Nova yes. Scotia for documents relating to the Protestant Orphans Home. Their response? Their response was that they had none, um, that, you know, a search of the archives might net some. And the archives does have a lot of documents. Where it was a private institution, um, it is plausible that um, they have none. I know in some cases children's aid had records because... Um, uh, some of the residents had done their own personal freedom of information, which they would have to do, of course, for me to see them. Um, so it is possible that all of those uh, records are at the archives where the province wasn't directly running it. Um, I did try many times through the process. Um, way back, I started out doing a couple of these stories for Halifax Magazine, actually, which was very supportive of of getting these stories out there. And I had tried from then on until the completion of the book to speak to various community services ministers. Um, I would get a um, just a general statement from their communications people, um, but I wanted to sit down and kind of talk this through. Obviously, no one who works there now was directly linked to this. I know the current ministers and government didn't have a hand in this, but it would have been nice to have some sort of more meaningful conversation with the province about that. For an institution that closed in 1970. 1970s, not that long ago. The building still exists. It's known as Veith House in Halifax. Tell us how former residents relate to it now. For some of them, it's, uh, it's very emotional to go back there. Um, Linda goes back sometimes and gives tours, and, um, and she's been back you know, with me and um, 
when we went through, as you will see in the chapter about Linda, um, she was emotional every step of the way. We, we, we walked to the isolation room. We walked up to the dorm. We walked to a corner where she had stood all night long. We walked to the bathroom where a matron had once dunked her head under bath water and she thought she was going to die. And um, with each step, there was a tear. There, you know, with each memory, there was um, pain. And um, I've had other residents as well, though, who for them, compared to what they faced in their home before or after, the orphanage was maybe as bad as it was, kind of a refuge. So they go back, um, and it kind of gives them comfort in a way. Leonard Chater um, is one of those. Joe Gooey, um, their chapter is called Better Than Home. And uh, so for them, it kind of gives them a, a kind of comfort to return. There are many of the, the children who went through the, the Protestant Orphans Home in Halifax, of course, who never quite recovered from the trauma, and we don't hear their voices. But the thing that comes through in your book, the, the people who have been able to talk about it, you can't help but be impressed by their resilience. I, it's incredible. I a, a couple of them um, attended the launch book launch um, a few weeks ago, and um, when I was speaking, I was sitting looking at them. I, I told them that because I don't, I don't think they, having lived it, get a sense of how strong and resilient they really are. But someone like me or you or a reader, and you're looking at their story and you're thinking oh my gosh, I don't think I could withstand that right now and I'm not a child. They were so little, you know, five, six, seven years old. And um, I told them that I th even if they don't know it, um, others, we see them as strong people, resilient people. They've gone on to build lives. Um, uh, Shirley Carter, who was tied to her bed and kept in closets, she went on when she was in her 40s to become a nurse. She taught herself. She, she, um, she persevered. Um, Paul has gone on um, to have many different uh, careers. Um, all, all of them are very strong, even though they're still haunted maybe in some ways. I wanted them to know that, that I admire them. Lois Legg, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you so much. Lois Legg is a journalist and the author of Wounded Hearts, Memories of the Halifax Protestant Orphans Home. It's published by Nimbus. To catch any or all of the conversations I've had with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, go to bookmepodcast.ca. Whenever we have a new interview ready, we post an alert on the Book Me Podcast Instagram account and share the link with everyone you know who's a reader. We'd also love it if you could rate or review our podcast on your favorite download site. And if you'd like to comment on a podcast like this one, our email is info at bookmepodcast.ca. That's info at bookmepodcast.ca. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Thanks to the Halifax Central Library for the use of its studio. Our producer is Robin Grant, and Lynn Fox is our recording engineer. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Oh, 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 oh,